Welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. A couple of weeks ago, I think I may have mentioned this, but a few weeks back, I officiated a wedding in Vail, Colorado. The groom is a longtime friend of Sam's, and over the years, he has become an important part of our family. And it was an absolutely beautiful setting. Obviously, Vail is rather nice. I'd never been there, but it was a beautiful place. I've done a lot of weddings over the years, and I enjoy being in this sacred space with couples. At least most of the time, I enjoy it. But this ceremony in Vail and the party that followed was drenched in an extra helping of goodness. And I'm not exactly sure why or why I felt that. But this wedding was a display of authentic goodness right smack in the middle of a world that frequently displays authentic suffering. An experience I had at the reception makes my point. I was sitting in our table. Dinner was finished. Julie was in a long conversation with the person next to her. I was tired from the travel and the ceremony and all the details that go into these kinds of things. So I was sitting there by myself next to her at a table filled with people, but I was quietly reflecting. I was in contemplation mode, even as this loud thumping music blared in the background. At one point, I glanced over at the table next to us, and I saw this older woman holding a few months old baby. And I just sat there for a few minutes and studied this baby. He rested his head on her shoulder. He was a picture of peace in the midst of all the noise. He seemed content in the arms of this caring woman. I didn't know it at the time, but it turns out his name, too, was Sam. That made it even more meaningful. And as I kept watching him just kind of laying there with his head on his mom's shoulder, he started doing this. He started to examine his own hand. He actually found his hand as I was sitting there watching him. And for him, it was the greatest discovery in the history of the world. And I had a front row seat to this miracle. His eyes kept trying to focus, you know, this kind of a thing. Trying to see, what is this thing sliced into five pieces? He couldn't stop staring at his hand. He was content. He was at peace. His whole life was stretched out in front of him. I was so taken by this, I got up and walked over to the woman and I told her, you know, this little guy has just found his hand. And she looked up at me with her face filled with joy and she said, I know. Isn't it wonderful? And in that brief moment for those few seconds, I tasted and saw that God is good. And for those few moments, I reveled in his goodness. And occasionally, I think God puts these little outbreaks of goodness in our path. And they're great gifts. But, unfortunately, there's often a but. As we unfortunately know, these good and beautiful moments are but one side of life's story. A wonderful side, a side for which We are grateful, but there is another side, a suffering side, an agony side. In this world, some little ones are held close by loving hands, 
but other little ones never feel the embrace of tender hands that love. Early in life, they learn the world is cold and distant and hard, and it never softens throughout their years on this planet. And sometimes in this painful world, these little ones don't live very long. And yet somehow, we as followers of Jesus believe a powerful God stands above both those who thrive and find their hand and those who suffer and don't make it past the age of one. And somehow, we believe this God is good. For the past several weeks, we have been exploring these various tensions in our world, various and statements, as we have been calling them, that have drifted or are drifting toward an or statement. These things that maybe at one time were held together are now kind of drifting apart and oppositional to each other. And today we're considering the tension between the goodness of God and the brokenness of the world. How can these things coexist? If God is so good and powerful, why does evil prevail so often? If God is so good and powerful, why do the most vulnerable ones suffer and sometimes die? Some form of this question has perplexed human beings for many centuries, and we've got 27 minutes to resolve it. Not really. C.S. Lewis, in his classic treatise on this topic in a book called The Problem of Pain, famously summarizes the issue by writing, If God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. No doubt C.S. Lewis was incredibly brilliant. But his statement in this book is framed with philosophical and theological borders, but suffering, as we know, is not theoretical. We actually experience pain and suffering in our everyday lives and families and relationships. We regularly read news accounts of what seem like random and senseless pain and suffering. Stanley Hauerwas is a thinker and a theologian, and he captures the agony of street-level suffering when he writes, obviously suffering, seemingly unnecessary and pointless suffering, grips our lives in a manner that rightly leaves us numb. Some of us sitting here today are numb as we sit here. Numb from our own pain. Or Numb from the suffering of this world. Or numb because someone we know and care about is in the middle of some kind of suffering or pain. And perhaps we or they are trapped between the desire to cling to God's goodness on the one hand and the despair ignited by the world's brokenness on the other hand. And so today we want to kind of sit in the numbness, with an openness to God's presence. And in particular, with an openness to God's presence in the area of suffering that came to your mind a moment ago when we first began. So if you would stand for our scripture reading, I've chosen today 
to read from Psalm 88. And I'm reading from the message version of the Bible. So what you find in those Bibles in the chairs is going to seem very unlike what I'm about to read. I chose Psalm 88 from the message version because Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message, translated the message, not really translated it, but came up with a version of the Bible. What his goal was, was to take the original Hebrew and Greek and put it into the gritty language of real people. So this reading is raw and unfiltered, like what someone would write in their private journal or share with their closest friends. Psalm 88 from the message. God, you're my last chance of the day. I spend the night on my knees before you. Put me on your salvation agenda. Take notes on the trouble I'm in. I've had my fill of trouble. I'm camped on the edge of hell. I'm written off as a lost cause. One more statistic, a hopeless case, abandoned as already dead. One more body in a stack of corpses and not so much as a gravestone. I'm a black hole in oblivion. You've dropped me into a bottomless pit, sunk me in a pitch black abyss. I'm battered senseless by your rage, relentlessly pounded by your waves of anger. You turned my friends against me, made me horrible to them. I'm caught in a maze and can't find my way out, blinded by tears of pain and frustration. I call to you, God, all day I call. I wring my hands, I plead for help. Are the dead a live audience for your miracles? Do ghosts ever join the choirs that praise you? Does your love make any difference in a graveyard? Is your faithful presence noticed in the corridors of hell? Are your marvelous wonders ever seen in the dark? Your righteous ways noticed in the land of no memory? I'm standing my ground, God, shouting for help. At my prayers every morning, on my knees each daybreak. Why, God, do you turn a deaf ear? Why do you make yourself scarce? For as long as I remember, I've been hurting. I've taken the worst you can hand out, and I've had it. Your wildfire anger has blazed through my life. I'm bleeding, black and blue. You've attacked me fiercely from every side, raining down blows till I'm nearly dead. You made lover and neighbor alike dump me. The only friend I have left is darkness. This is the word of the Lord. May be seated. Obviously, these are the unedited words of someone who has experienced life's pain. I don't know if you felt this, but it's kind of uncomfortable to read such rawness. It kind of stirs something deep within, almost like, We want to whisper to the person next to us, is it okay to say these things? Because this seems like almost an attack on God. And you may have noticed this psalm doesn't end in a tidy fashion. There's no pretty bow wrapped around all the groans and aches. It ends with the haunting words, the only friend I have left is darkness. Now, obviously, we won't resolve this centuries-long tension here today because, for the most part, it is unresolvable. But what we can say about the goodness of God and the brokenness of the world is that there is hope. 
So how do we grasp that hope? How do we tap into that hope? First of all, God is better than expected. And you know, we can't say that about too many things in this life. But God is better than expected. His goodness is gooder than our expectation or imagination. Sometimes our high expectations of what life and relationships should or could be are the very reason for our discouragement and despair. It's one of the curses of living in North America. We have really high expectations on life. And one of the reasons for our discouragement and despair is because those expectations are often not met to the extent we want them to be met. So most things fail to live up to our high expectations. Life doesn't go our way. A marriage grows cold. A child chooses a path we prayed they wouldn't choose. We get laid off from a good job. We get a diagnosis that disrupts our future. But the overwhelming teaching of the Bible is that God actually is better than expected. Psalm 34 and verse 8. Taste and see That the Lord is good, blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. I referenced this when I was looking at this little baby. I tasted and I saw that God is good through this little baby on the shoulder of this loving woman. We have a perception of good. I had a perception of good etched into our minds. It's there. The word itself, good, evokes a meaning. So it makes sense that our understanding of good gets projected onto God. And yet, when I project what I think good means onto God, I'm forgetting that I am a limited, mortal, broken, jaded, sinful, selfish, fallen creature. So I cannot possibly have a holistic understanding of the goodness of an unlimited, immortal, perfect, and holy being. I have some idea of what it means for God to be good, but I only have a sliver of a grander vision. I am standing on the hill above Costco, and it is 10.30 at night, and I am gazing up at the sky without a telescope or binoculars, and I'm seeing the cosmos, but that is but a small sliver of what the James Webb Space Telescope sees every second. Or in the language of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13.9, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. See, one reason we get stuck between the goodness of God and the sufferings of this world is because our vision of God's goodness is too small, too tempered, or if you prefer, our expectations of God's goodness are too low. Psalm 89, the one after the one we read, rhetorically asks, Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? And the answer is no one. 
and no thing. God says of himself in Isaiah 46, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there was no one like me. God tells us himself in the book of Isaiah, he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. So we only know in part. We know a sliver of the grander vision. We, o- we only see in part, but we don't know the whole picture. See, sometimes I think we get stuck in wanting our lives to be good in ways that we and we only are defining. When I say the good life, probably certain things are lighting off in our minds as to what that means. And it's not to say those things aren't part of the goodness of God and the good life he desires, but they are only a sliver of what he means and what he desires. The goodness of God then is bigger than our ideas and it is beyond our ideas. God's goodness is so far beyond our expectations even, it might actually encompass and enfold those things that look and feel like suffering. Can you imagine that? Could it possibly be that the goodness of God is so much bigger and so far beyond our sliver of understanding that the goodness of God might actually encompass and enfold even those things in our lives that look and feel like suffering. God's purposes might be so indescribably and incomprehensibly good that he is able to redeem our sufferings and advance his purposes through them even though we will never understand. Now these are not easy things to wrap our heads around. And that actually is the point. Hope begins when we reach the end of our abilities. We can't wrap our heads around the goodness of God because it exceeds the capacity of our heads. And I don't know what all this does to you, but for me, this comes to me as being a bit scary. And yet, rather adventurous and wonderfully intriguing to realize this God we sing about and follow does not fit inside our paradigms or boxes or definitions. The best writing I've ever read on this comes from Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. You can see this on the screen. I'm going to read this slow because like I said, I've never read anything that captures this better. To Jesus' eyes, this is a God-bathed and God-permeated world in which we live. It is a world filled with a glorious reality where every component is within the range of God's direct knowledge and control. Though he obviously permits some of it, for good reasons, to be for a while otherwise than as he wishes. It is a world that is inconceivably beautiful and good because of God and because God is always in it. It is a world in which God is continually at play and over which he constantly rejoices until our thoughts of God have found every visible thing and event glorious with his presence. The word of Jesus has not yet fully seized us. Every visible thing and event glorious with his presence. 
a thing that came to mind earlier when we began every visible thing and event glorious with his presence. See, this means the circle of God's goodness somehow encompasses back pain, neck pain, shoulder pain. I'm giving you a list of all my ailments here. Every visible thing and event glorious with his presence means the circle of God's goodness somehow encompasses war, divorce, disease, hunger, cancer, even death. Not that those things are good, but the circle of God's goodness encompasses those things. How? I do not know. But God's goodness is not thwarted by human suffering. His goodness somehow encircles the suffering and infuses it with divine mystery and meaning. Secondly, the Christian story invites us to experience God in the suffering, but it doesn't fully explain the suffering. The desire to sufficiently explain suffering might just be the biggest barrier we face in trying to navigate the tension between God's goodness and the brokenness of the world. The sufferings of life and the sufferings of this world raise all kinds of vexing questions about God and who he is and whether faith is merely a human invention to try and deal with the agonies of life. Maybe, some of us wonder, God and his goodness is the morphine we have developed to numb us from the pain of this world, but it's all a fantasy, a myth. A placebo designed to make us feel better when we die. So when we gather together in a space like this, what we're talking about is morphine to help you make it another week. I was rifling through some computer files the other day and I came across all these weddings and funerals I've performed over the years. And both joy and pain arose within me as I looked down these names of people. Oh, that couple has two beautiful children now. That couple went through an ugly divorce. This girl, this little four-year-old girl, was the child of a single mother, and she died at the age of three. Why? How does this madness and suffering fit in a world run by a good God. How do we explain suffering? Here's the answer. Not very well. The Christian story does not attempt to explain suffering in any great detail. And you've probably noticed that people of faith and those without faith have often come to this crossroads and demanded the Christian story provide answers for all the suffering in the world. And the answer is the Christian story didn't set out to provide answers for all the suffering in the world. So what can we say? Genesis 3 tells us this world we are living in is under a curse because of sin. The world is under a curse because of sin. And this curse affects everything. People, relationships, our bodies, work, health, war, oppression, 
Every ism you can imagine has its roots in the curse on this world. That explains the suffering, sort of. In fact, I actually think we sometimes underestimate the ripple effect of the curse in this world. So let me say it again. The world is broken. It doesn't work the way it is supposed to work. So people abuse other people. Countries go to war. Young people get sick. Backs ache. Marriages struggle and sometimes fail. Children suffer and we all eventually die. And every single one of these tragedies and turmoils have their roots ultimately in the curse that sin brought upon this world. It's a rather silly example, but maybe think of it this way. It is as though we are driving across the country, fully aware that the car has a damaged transmission and a failing engine. But when the car breaks down, we scratch our head and go, why is this happening? Well, we are riding along right now in a world with a damaged transmission. I can't even say the word. That's how out of touch I am with mechanical things. But we're riding along right now in a world with a damaged transmission and a failing engine. So problems and sorrows and sufferings happen. And I know how unsatisfying this answer is, especially when suffering barges through your front door. Personally, I find this answer terribly unsatisfying. But that is really the ultimate point. The Christian story has never claimed to explain in detail why things are the way they are and why hard things happen. Christian beliefs and convictions do not answer all the vexing questions of life in a broken world, and they never were intended to answer all these questions. Rather, our beliefs and convictions assert who God is and what he is doing in the world through Jesus Christ by the power of his spirit in every situation and in every circumstance. So the Christian story invites us to experience God in the suffering, but it doesn't fully explain the suffering. And this failure of the Christian story is enough for some people to kind of brush it aside as cute but unhelpful, and in some ways, I actually get that. But also realize, and I'll tell you, I didn't know this until I dug into this topic this week, but this seems important to me. The tremor of God's goodness And human suffering was not really much of an issue until the Enlightenment, 400 years ago or so. That's when we humans began to think we had the right to know how all these things work. That's when we sort of reached for the control panel of the universe and really began to question God's qualifications and competence to run the universe. But for the vast majority of history, the question has not been, how can God be good and human suffering be so prevalent? The question has been, how can I faithfully endure suffering as a Christ follower? So until relatively recently, the Bible was never considered an answer book for the problem of evil, but a guidebook on living faithfully through the evil. 
Now, just to say it, I really wish we had more detailed explanations for why this little one is held by loving hands while that little one won't see their first birthday. But the Bible doesn't so much answer how can this suffering be, rather it answers in this suffering, how then shall we live? Lastly, let's talk about naming the silences. This phrase is the title of a book about God and the problem of suffering. And it refers to the importance of naming the silences created by our sufferings. And I love the invitation. I love what this phrase is asking us to do. Name the silences. The silences born from our sufferings. The things we think and feel but don't know how to verbalize and don't know if they are okay to verbalize. So naming the silences is about expressing them unfiltered to God and to each other in all of their roughness and rawness. It's about being real about how we feel about the sufferings in our lives and in the world. Psalm 88 again, the scripture I read at the beginning from the message names the silences created by the author's pain and suffering. It is a psalm of lament, a psalm that articulates the pain and isolation and sadness of life in a broken world. It expresses anger, sadness, disappointment, fear, and even rage to God. God, you've dropped me into a bottomless pit, sunk me in a pitch black abyss. I'm battered senseless by your rage, relentlessly pounded by your waves of anger. You turned my friends against me, made me horrible to them. I'm caught in a maze and can't find my way out, blinded by tears of pain and frustration. I'm standing my ground, God, shouting for help at my prayers every morning on my knees each daybreak. Why, God, do you turn a deaf ear? Why do you make yourself scarce? This is the journey in the way of suffering. Not to find explanations or answers because they never satisfy, but to seek God in the pain. Yell at God in the midst of the loss. Question God for the troubles. And in these honest outpourings, we end up leaning on God and the community of his people When life isn't going as planned. See, naming the silences, I can feel this. Naming the silences is against the grain for those who have been trained and conditioned to polish up our acts so we don't ruffle God's feathers. You may know this act. When life hurts, when suffering comes, we feel the pressure to still look the part, act the part, speak the part, and lament feels like sin. So we hide our silences behind a veil of religiosity, but our silence betrays the smallness of our God, a God whose feathers apparently are easily ruffled, an insecure God who can't handle our laments, a God who demands our loyalty and could care less about our frailty. But the Bible directs us, commands us, invites us, to name our silences. The suffering and pain and evil of the world touches our biggest fears, awakens our deepest longings, one of which is 
When is the world going to be made right? The suffering and pain and evil of the world triggers, perhaps, our anger with God. Rekindles, perhaps, our disappointment with God. And summons prayers from the murky depths of our hurting hearts. And God invites all of these agonizing rants and feelings and heartaches and questions to be brought to him in lament and prayer. And by doing this with others alongside of us, our distortions of God get shattered. And the real God, the one who doesn't fit in a box, the one who identifies with our sufferings and cares for our pain, this wonderfully unpredictable and good God gradually emerges and leads us down the narrow road that leads to life. So I'll end where we began. What suffering weighs heavy on your heart today? Your own, someone you know, or something in the world? One of the reasons it's so essential for us to gather together and stand together and pray together and worship God together is because in doing so, we remind each other of God's bigger reality. And you may be in a place today where you don't need to be reminded of God's bigger reality because suffering is far from you. I assure you, there are people here and around you who need to be reminded of God's reality. And I'd like for you to take it as your responsibility to remind them. We remind each other of God's bigger reality. His reality is bigger and stronger and beyond our present darkness and difficulties. One of the roles of the Christian community is to help each other navigate the brokenness of this world. And we can do this in many ways. But today we thought it'd be a good idea to end our time not just by listening, not with a kind of benediction, not with a happy moment, if you will. But today we decided to end our time by inviting you who want to, to come forward and spend some time alone with God, praying, lamenting, pouring out your heart to God. And you can do that if you notice on either side of the stage, there is a area in the corner. There's a cross and there is a kneeler. You might want to kneel. You might want to sit down on the floor. You might want to just stand there and be in that space and pray and pour your heart out to God for your suffering, for the suffering of someone you know, for the suffering of the world. You also may want to come today because you're carrying things that are too heavy for you. And you'd actually like somebody to pray with you. So about halfway back on this side and this side, one of our elders is going to just be standing there. And they're there in case you have something that you can't carry alone and you'd like someone to pray with you and for you about this point of pain and, and suffering. I know this is perhaps for some of you a little bit out of the box and a little bit of a reach. My encouragement to you is to be bold and to uh, not fear. You may feel the weight of something and you felt it for a long time. Your own suffering, the suffering of someone you know, the war, all the senseless school violence, someone you've loved who died during COVID, social issues galore, whatever it might be. My encouragement to you is to come forward and take time to be with God, 
to worship him in this way, to pour out your heart and to invite others, namely these elders, to pray with you. As the prophet said, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those whose trust is in him. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your exquisite goodness. And we do taste and we do see that you are good. And then there is this other stuff we taste and see. And it hurts us deeply. I know there are people here today who the moment the topic arose, their mind raced to something they're facing, something a family member or friend is facing, or something happening in the world that just doesn't line up with who they want you to be and what they want the world to be. As we take a few minutes, be present with us in this time that we might find you in the midst of our difficulties, that we might remember that you are good. You are a refuge in times of trouble and you care for those whose trust is in you. So be with us, we pray in Jesus' name.